Purpose of the tyranny of merit is to try to make sense of why why we're so deeply polarized. And I think to understand it, we have to look back at the politics of the last four or five decades. It's just not merit that tyrannizes us. It's it's the neoclassical and neoliberal framework for understanding economic cause and effect, which is equally tyrannical. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. It wouldn't surprise a lot of listeners, Nick, to learn that your net worth, uh, give or take, is about a thousand times more than mine. Does that mean, Nick, that that you're a, a thousand times more deserving? I'd like to think so. <laughs> well, of course you would. And and right there, that's kind of yeah. that's kind of the secret to this whole notion of meritocracy that's that right. we'll be talking about today. That really it's a defense of the status quo for uh, really, really, really rich people like you. That's right. Yeah. No, clearly uh I'm probably sadly not a thousand times more productive, smart, hardworking, attractive. Uh, what, what, uh, what, what else? I'll, is I'll there? take everything else. <laughs> yeah, okay, you're saying then me, uh, then then you. Um, and yet we live. You've got better, a thousand times better hair. I do. Than I, I have. have. A, I probably literally a thousand <laughs> times more hair than you. Yeah, yeah. So there's something. So there you have it. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, but and yet uh, we live in a culture supported by an economic framework that encourages people to believe that if I make a thousand times as much as you do, I'm worth a thousand times as much. And today on the podcast, we get to talk to our one of our absolute favorite people in the whole wide world, Dr. Michael Sandel, uh, the noted political philosopher from Harvard about his latest book, The Tyranny of Merit. And Goldie, I, I wanted to do this podcast so much because as I may have told you uh, some months ago, I was in the office of a particular United States senator who will not be named uh, in Washington, D.C., and on his desk was uh, Sandel's new book, um, The Tyranny of Merit, and I was like, oh my gosh, look at you reading Michael Sandel, and he pushed the book at me and he said, take a look, and every page was underlined, and Every margin, there were notes written. It was in, it was really clear that this senator had taken this book incredibly seriously, and he said it changed his life. You know, he just it was the thing that finally shattered the neoliberal kind of framework that he had been operating in really for his whole life. And as a consequence of reading Sandel's book, this senator has really changed his mind about a lot of things. And and because this particular person is extremely bright and very um, self-aware and, ref- uh, you know, reflective, 
has, you know, again, has changed his mind about a lot of things that he wants to do in the future and feels bad about a lot of the things he did in the past. And so for that reason, I think this book is really, really important. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a, it's sort of a philosophical companion to our attack on the economics of neoliberalism, neoclassical economics. I'm Michael Sandel. I teach political philosophy at Harvard University, and I'm the author, most recently, of a book called The Tyranny of Merit, Can We Find the Common Good?, and a new edition of a book called Democracy's Discontent, a new edition for our perilous times. Both of them are about our civic condition, why it's in trouble, and what we might do about it. Well, Michael, if you wouldn't mind starting out by laying out the thesis of your newest book, uh, and then I want to circle back to democracy's discontent, because that's how I found you, because <laughs> uh, I read that book when it came out so many years ago. Great. Well, the main purpose of the tyranny of merit is to try to make sense of why, why we're so deeply polarized. And I think to understand it, we have to look back at the politics of the last four or five decades. The divide between winners and losers has been deepening, poisoning our politics and setting us apart. This has partly to do, I think, with the widening inequalities of income and wealth brought about by market-driven globalization. But it has also to do with the changing attitudes toward success that have accompanied the widening inequalities. Those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and that they therefore deserve the full bounty that the market bestows upon them. And by implication, that those who struggle, those left behind, must deserve their fate as well. Now, this harsh attitude towards success arises from a seemingly attractive ideal, the ideal of meritocracy, the principle that says, insofar as chances are equal, the winners deserve their winnings. Now, we know that in practice, we don't live up to the meritocratic ideals we profess. Kids born to low-income families tend to stay poor as adults. But I think the solution isn't simply to try to perfect the meritocracy, to double down on it. I think the problem goes deeper. Meritocracy has a dark side. It's corrosive of the common good because it breeds a kind of hubris among the winners, the conviction that we, that our success is our own doing. And it inflicts a kind of humiliation Nick, on those who who are left behind. And it leads the successful to look down on those less fortunate than themselves. And I think this condition, this sense of elites looking down, goes a long way to explaining the populist backlash against elites, especially credentialed elites, that led to the election of Donald Trump in 2016, it contributed to the to the vote for Brexit in the UK, 
into the alienation of working people from center-left parties in democratic societies around the world. So, so to be clear, it's not just inequality that has created this populist uprising, but what uh, this meritocratic ideal says about inequality and the moral implications uh, yes. implicit in that. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's both together. In a way, it's as if the, the winners of globalization wanted more than the winnings. They wanted to be able to claim credit. They wanted to be able to have the, the bragging rights, to have deserved the benefits that came their way. And it's interesting, going all the way back a century ago, Max Weber noticed this. He said, the fortunate person doesn't only want to enjoy his good fortune. He wants to believe that he deserves it yeah. and that he deserves it in comparison with others. So I think he was on to this. Nick, you hang, you hang out with some billionaires. Yeah. Yeah, you know these people well. Does this ring true to you? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, you know, in, 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 many cases, in many cases it does, although, you know, I honestly hang out with a group of people who are at least socially self-aware enough to, to at least feign some humility. And of course, you know, like many, many of my successful friends are very capable people, um, and they would have been successful in some way, shape or form, probably uh, no matter what. But to be truly successful, your capability has to intersect with luck in a very profound way, which is the thing that most people don't don't account for. As you may know, our work here has been focused mostly on inequality and the way in which economics writ large has produced both a set of policies, but also a culture that rewards the few and you know, immiserates the many. One of the questions I have, and I think you say it so well in your book, which is that, that it's not just the rising inequality is ultimately to do with the changing terms of social recognition and esteem that's driving us apart. One of my questions for you is, if we made the United States significantly less unequal, right? If we, if we addressed the inequality in our uh, economy at the scale of the problem, let's say, does that fix the problem? It helps. It okay. creates an opening to fix the yeah. problem, but by itself, it's not enough because, well, we could imagine one way of trying to alleviate inequalities of income, at least, by doing what some have proposed in enacting a universal basic income. Yeah. And that would be a good thing in and of itself, but it wouldn't solve the problem of social recognition and esteem unless uh, we found a way to accord honor and respect and esteem for the contributions that people make, whether or not they uh, have uh, uh, glittering credentials of various kinds, whether they or not they have a diploma, whether or not they sit at the apex of the media and Wall Street and academia. I, I think that part of what we have to do is to try to renew the dignity of work. Part of what's you mentioned the distinction, and I think this is very important, between economic policy and the culture. Yes. The way we understand the sources and meaning of the inequality. And part of what turned the culture in a way that discredited 
especially center-left politicians and parties, is that during the age of growing inequality, during the age of neoliberal globalization, what the mainstream parties, including Democrats, said as a way of dealing with inequality was this. If you're worried about wage stagnation and job loss and outsourcing and rising inequality, go get a degree. Go to university. You remember what they said? What you earn will depend on what you learn. That's you right. can make it if you try. Now, what these elites missed was the insult implicit mm -hmm. in that advice. The insult was this. If you're struggling in the new economy and you don't have a university degree, your failure must be your fault. We told you so. We advised you to improve yourselves. That also had the effect not only of insulting working people and failing to, to respect and to recognize the contributions that they make through the work they do and the families they raise and the communities they serve, it also let elites off, of, off the hook. They yes. didn't say we need to reconsider the economic policies we put in place that led to this inequality. They said, go get a college degree, then you too will be able to rise as far as your talents and efforts will take you. And it's, it's the implicit insult that they missed that I think fueled the anger and resentment and the sense of grievance that Donald Trump and other right-wing populists have been able to tap into. That's right. We, we call that uh, here in this shop educationism. <laughs> the idea yeah. that, you know, inequality, you know, you can solve it with education, which, I mean, it, it, even, if you, even if you divorce from the problem, this idea of insult, which I think you're absolutely right, there was never a shred of truth to the claim that this would help either. <laughs> because there are, Americans right. have never been better educated. And yet college graduate uh, incomes have been falling for like 40 years, right? It was just, it, it just, it was just such a con job. The educationism was a false response yes. to inequality. And what it really rests on is an assumption, which I agree with you is a mistaken assumption, that individual upward mobility through higher education is the answer to inequality. But that's, that's a mistake for a number of reasons. One of them is it's not so easy to rise. We always in, in America said, yeah, we may be more unequal than those old European societies, but we don't need to worry about equality very much because in America, it's always possible to rise. Individual upward mobility. Problem is, mobility, it turns out, is not an alternative to equality. Those countries with greater equality of income and wealth have higher rates of mobility than we do. If I could just give one example uh, of this, in some of the Northern European countries, in Denmark, for example, there are very high rates of upward mobility. The OECD did a study of how many generations it would take for someone born into a low-income family, bottom 10%, to rise not to the top, but to the median income. How many generations? In Denmark, it would take two generations. In the United States, given our mobility rates, it would take five. Right. So wow. the American dream, you might say, is alive and well and living in Copenhagen. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious... 
how much this um, ideology of meritocracy can be disentangled from the economic ideology, the the neoliberal ideology, and the neoclassical economics that has dominated our thinking for the past half century. I mean, a core principle of orthodox economics is this idea that the market pays you what you're worth, and that right. is that is a meritocratic formula if there ever was one. Can we address? the the larger social philosophical issue without addressing the economic orthodoxy that that supports it no we need to question both and challenge both at the same time because the kind of meritocracy that fuels what i've described in the tyranny of merit as a kind of meritocratic hubris that meritocracy with its attitudes towards success the idea that we are self-made and self-sufficient this notion of meritocracy is the moral companion of neoliberal economic policy. Neoliberal economic policy, and you, you put it very well, it, it leads to the assumption or it, re it rests on the assumption that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. But this is, a, this is an implausible assumption, even though it's <laughs> pervasive. Yes. Even the most ardent defenders of libertarian, laissez-faire, free market economics would be hard-pressed really to make the case that the value of the contribution of a hedge fund manager, or let's say a, a billionaire casino mogul, that the value of their contribution is really a thousand or two thousand times greater than the value of the contribution of a school teacher or a nurse, or for that matter, a physician. So on, on a moment's reflection, it's really hard to sustain that idea. That uh, unless you're, unless you're in the Hamptons. <laughs> well, you, you'll have to tell me about that. Yeah. If you're in the Hamptons, yeah. people can sustain that quite easily. But, but go, I think we're in violent agreement with you, but go on. <laughs> Well, I would just say uh, you are right to highlight the, the or, or to to uh, point to the link between meritocratic attitudes towards success uh, and and the hubris and the humiliation that that creates, yeah. and neoliberal uh, economic policies that create uh, the inequalities of income and wealth. Here's a here's one way of thinking about it. Uh, Neoliberal economic policies created the growing gap between rich and poor. Meritocratic notions of success created the divide between winners and losers. So they are parallel. Oh, but that's interesting. The, the, the cultural understanding of success is what gives us the divide between winners and losers, and it sharpens the the sense of resentment of grievance and of humiliation for those who have le who are left behind who see elites looking down on them yeah. and they're not mistaken they're no. not mistaken educationism is the term you use to describe this misdirected ideology another another uh, term for it would be credentialism the idea that we we've we've uh, discredited most every prejudice in our 
society, which isn't to say we've eliminated it, but we discredited prejudice, except for the prejudice of the credentialed against those with a lesser education. And here's, if I could give one, one very tangible consequence of this. If we look at political representation, we take this for granted. What percentage of, of Americans have a four-year college degree? It's about 35%, which means about more than 60%. 60 to 65% of Americans do not have a four-year degree. Of those 60 to 65% of Americans, how many of them are, make their way into Congress or into the Senate? And not many. There are, in the Senate, there are none. And in the House of Representatives, it's about 5%. Now, by any other measure, if, if other groups in our society were that woefully underrepresented in the institutions of government, we would say we need to do something about it. And I think we don't, we don't really debate this question uh, about the, the fact that most Americans don't have a degree and yet almost none serve in Congress, perhaps because we think, well, isn't it better to be governed by the, the well-educated? To which I would say, not necessarily. I mean, if you think Congress has done a terrific job of it, <laughs> you could make a case for it. But that's a pretty hard case to make out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You you make you make the point that in uh, the UK, the Parliament has never been so unequal on this measure since the 19th century, before they expanded uh, the franchise to the unpropertied. Yes. Yes, in, in fact, it's, it's interesting that, that this tendency for those without uh, a diploma to be essentially excluded from representative government in practice, it's true not only in the U.S., it's true in Britain, where very, very small percentage of those without a degree are members of parliament. It's true in the parliaments of Europe, in France, in Germany in the Netherlands. And it wasn't always this way. It's interesting. If we look back in the, to the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s, after the adoption of universal franchise and the abolition of property rights, those without university degrees had very substantial representation in national legislatures. You have to go back, as you were just suggesting, to the 19th century, when there were still property qualifications for voting, and when the landed gentry predominated, you have to go back really to the, the days of the, the landed gentry and the aristocracy to find a similar lack of representation in uh, legislatures by those without university degrees. But just to clarify for our listeners, you are not arguing in your book against banning merit altogether. As you say, you know, hiring someone on the basis of merit is perfectly sensible. Can you just explain the distinction that you're trying to draw here? Yes. Insofar as merit means trying to have well-qualified people perform social roles, that's a, merit is a good thing. If I need surgery, I want a well-qualified surgeon to perform it. Yeah. That's merit. Yeah. Uh, if I'm flying in an airplane, I want a well-qualified pilot at the controls. 
that's merit. So merit in that sense is a perfectly good and sensible thing. So how does, how does merit become a kind of tyranny? It becomes a kind of tyranny when the view, you could call it an ideology, takes hold, especially at times of widening income inequality, that the rich are rich because they are more deserving than the poor. And this goes back to the assumption that the money people make is the true measure of their contribution to the common good. Now, this is when we, we get the idea that the successful deserve the winnings, that uh, those who land on top, that, that our success is our own doing. It's, that it's, it's meritocracy in that thoroughgoing sense that I'm critical of and that I think has created the ground for this deep polarization. You have an interesting thought experiment in the book where you, you ask the reader to imagine two equally unequal uh, societies, one in aristocracy, the other a meritocracy. And which would you choose to be a part of if you were going to be either in the top or in the bottom? And you point out that uh, for the poor, it actually, there's a strong argument for why you would prefer the aristocracy. There is. There are arguments both ways. So right. if you're poor, if you're poor and you're looking up in an unequal society, you might say, given the choice, hey, I'd rather live in, in a meritocracy because at least there's a hope of upward mobility, if not for me, at least for my children. That would argue in favor of a meritocracy if you were choosing from the bottom looking up. But there's another consideration that cuts the other way, which is if I live in an aristocracy, if, if I'm a serf, let's say, in a feudal aristocracy, I have a hard life and I might be resigned to the fact that neither I nor my children have any chance of living in the manor and rising to the top. And that's deeply dispiriting and demoralizing. On the other hand, I know that I landed where I landed through bad luck and that the, that the, uh, the, the nobleman or the, the landed gentry for whom I toil is not better than me. He's luckier than me. Whereas in, from the standpoint of a person struggling in a meritocracy, insofar as that person absorbs the understanding of success that accompanies a true meritocracy, that person has to be, be burdened by the thought that I, I must not be as talented or as capable. I may not work uh, hard enough. I may not be smart enough to have landed on top. My success, or, or my lack of success, rather, is my own doing, is my failure. And so there is, a, there is a burden associated with that. And it's interesting that this, I, this demoralizing aspect of being losing out in a meritocracy was the critique of meritocracy that was identified when the term meritocracy was coined by Michael Young, a British Labour Party sociologist in the late 1950s. He put the term meritocracy into currency with a, a little dystopian 
book he wrote called The Rise of the Meritocracy. Now, Michael Young was a member of the Labour Party. He was in favor of greater equality. And he thought the fact that the old class system was breaking down was a good thing. But he noticed this feature of a meritocracy, and he predicted that over time, those who lost out in a meritocracy would feel looked down upon by the winners who would construe their success as their own doing. And Michael Young predicted that in the year 2034, there would be a populist backlash overthrowing the meritocratic elite. He, uh, his prophecy came true 18 years ahead of schedule. And here we are. Uh, you know, one of the things that struck me in the book was your, your whole conversation of right versus smart. And I, I saw in this a critique that I, I intuited, but never quite fully understood, because uh, honestly, you were speaking to me as well. I'm one of these people who has a kind of technocratic streak and always felt that, well, yes, yeah, smart people should be running the country. I want people who are smarter than me to run the country. Uh, uh, but that how corrosive it was within the Democratic Party and how much of it it led to their loss of support in working people. If you could just explain that difference and, and, and how really the center left lost its way. Yes, this is the emphasis on technocratic expertise uh, is an emphasis that became more and more prominent in the Democratic Party, especially from the 1990s up through uh, 2016 and beyond. And it, it was connected to this idea, and it's a meritocratic idea, that the ultimate term of praise of a person or of a policy is smart. So the distinction becomes not so much the, the moral distinction or the ideological distinction of right versus wrong, justice versus injustice, um, but instead smart versus dumb. And it's understandable why Democrats of the 90s and 2000s fell into this way of talking about policy and for that matter, personnel, valorizing the smart. It was related to their emphasis on higher education as an instrument of upward mobility, as if it were an answer to inequality. But it goes beyond that. It goes to valorizing a technocratic approach to government and politics. It seems nonpartisan to say I'm for smart policies rather than uh, this policy uh, promotes the common good as I see it, or this policy promotes a just society as I'm prepared to defend it. Uh, those are debatable propositions. What serves the common good or prom what promotes a greater justice? They're debatable, they're contestable, they're controversial. They require moral argument in politics. In a way, it's a kind of defensive maneuver, a, a gesture towards seemingly nonpartisan modes of governing to say, no, I'm going to govern in a way that's smart. And we saw it time and again in a slogan, which reflects this, the slogan, follow the science. How often did we hear this during COVID? But even before, even during the 
the glory days of neoliberal globalization, the argument was that outsourcing jobs to low-wage countries, deregulating the financial industry, insisting on the free flow of capital across national borders, all of this will help everyone. The gains to the gainers can be used to offset the loss to the losers. That's what the, the mainstream economists said. It was, these were the experts. These were the experts who endorsed this kind of hyper-globalization. And then the, the financial crash came in 2008, and that expertise was tainted a little bit, but they dusted themselves off. They, they, re, they rebuilt that system. And they persisted in a kind of technocratic mode of governance. And then when COVID came, we heard this slogan, follow the science, which was another depoliticizing, seemingly nonpartisan stance toward deciding such questions as whether or not to close schools during COVID. Well, science is certainly relevant to that question. But science can't tell you uh, by itself whether or when or under what conditions to close schools. That's a political judgment that involves ethical judgments that should be informed by science but can't be determined by science. And I'm afraid we're making a similar mistake now, this emphasis on smart policies, technocratic policies, uh, when we're, we, as we are engaged in the debate about climate change, and my worry is that we're going to replicate the same kind of technocratic hubris and political divide over climate change that we saw over COVID because of the, the kind of technocratic hubris of governing elites who think they don't need to involve themselves in in messy on the ground debates about the common good, including with the folks whose jobs will be displaced by the transition to a green economy. It's enough to say, this is what the scientists tell us we must do, but that's gonna put people off. It's in a way undemocratic. It's deeply undemocratic. Yeah, the word that we find that is used most in it, it, to advance this uh, at least among in, in in economics is efficiency. That right. word is so corrupt today, um, in the sense that it you know it merely means capital efficiency. It means right. you know we want to cost cutting. Cost cutting. <laughs> it, we we want to do this in a way so that the people who are putting up the capital get the highest possible return, and every other consideration be damned. <laughs> right? Issues of justice be damned, inequality be damned, environmental impact be damned, social solidarity be damned, everything. It doesn't matter what, you know, and as if capital efficiency is godliness, is the common good, right? We, we have confused yes, yes. these things in ways yes. that are just so profoundly corrosive to people's lives and democracy and everything else like that. It, it just really, really maddening. Uh, you're a philosopher. And we, we tend to, you know, our focus is on the economics itself. And, uh, you know, it's just not merit that tyrannizes us. It's, it's the neoclassical and neoliberal framework for understanding economic cause and effect, which is equally tyrannical, right? The idea that markets are yes. perfectly efficient, that people are homo economicus, that the economy is a Pareto optimal equilibrium, that people are paid their marginal product. 
all of these ideas are effectively a protection racket for the rich and seek to disengage people from the moral questions that really define the texture of our lives. Yes, I think that I think that puts it very well. And and the, the heart of the problem for politics is that this way of thinking and running and managing the economy is deeply undemocratic. Because if efficiency considerations or if cost benefit analysis are the final word, can give us the final word or the decisive word on how to organize the economy, then economic choices and policy making are the province of experts. Yes. Those who know how to run the cost benefit analyses and how to, to crank out the efficiency uh, considerations. But here's the problem. I think the appeal, the deep appeal of market thinking and market reasoning and this economistic view of the world that you're describing, the deep appeal is not only that markets deliver the goods, prosperity, rising GDP, and the like. The deep appeal of market thinking and market reasoning is that markets seem to be value-neutral instruments that spare us from engaging in messy, contentious, controversial debates about justice, about equality and inequality, about what we owe one another as fellow citizens. So the, the appeal of markets is that they seem that they seem to be a neutral way of deciding contested questions. They seem to spare us the need to engage in moral reasoning in public because we worry about, uh, about disagreement, about the lack of consensus, about the hard work of deliberating as democratic citizens uh, over contested questions of justice and the common good. But this is a false promise of markets. Markets are not neutral instruments, as you well know. Efficiency considerations, cost-benefit analysis, these are not neutral ways of deciding contested questions of, of justice or the common good. They don't leave these questions unresolved. Uh, they, they simply enable them to be decided by systems, often uh, decisions, often at a distance from public view, superintended largely by the wealthy and the powerful and the well-connected. And this is the, the essence of the argument you made in the first book of yours that I read, which was Democracy's Discontent, is it not? Yes. So yes. what's annoying about it is that I read that book. When, when did it come out? 96, 98? When did it come out? Yes, originally in 96. Okay, I must yeah. have read it in 96, 97. I was still a raging uh, neoliberal in those days. Um, uh, but the book <laughs> made it... Because, I look, I grew up in that soup, you know, and I was sure. a, a, a business person, an entrepreneur. Uh, the, you know, there is, as you must know, the, the, there is nothing more comforting than to believe that your success is your own and that markets are perfectly efficient and the rich deserve to be rich and the poor deserve to be poor if you're rich, right? It's it's an easy thing right. to believe. But yes. but your 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 book rocked my world in 96, 97, whenever I read it. And I guess my question is, is a sort of a personal question, how come you were so far ahead in your thinking? <laughs> 
Wow. It's a, it's a generous question. It's a very generous question. Because you, you were onto it 20 years before the rest of us, or a long time before the rest of us. Well, yeah, fair enough. And again, it's, it's generous of you to, to observe. What struck me at the time, now this was a time of market triumphalist faith. Yes. The Cold War had ended. There was a heady sense of satisfaction that the world, that, that, that ours was the only system left standing, that we had won, we had prevailed. America's version of democratic capitalism was the wave of the future. It was only a matter of time before other countries would see the light. And yet, beneath the surface, of the peace and prosperity and triumphalism of the moment, it seemed to me that fractures in the democratic project could be glimpsed in two ways. There was abroad in the land, or so it seemed to me, a growing sense of disempowerment, a sense among ordinary citizens that their voices didn't matter, that we didn't have a meaningful say in shaping the forces that govern our collective life. So there was a sense of growing disempowerment. And it was also a sense that the moral fabric of community, from family to neighborhood to, na to the nation, was unraveling around us, that we were less anchored in, in the forms of community that gave our life meaning, that gave us a kind of moral anchor or sense of situation in the world, a sense of belonging. And I think these sentiments were present, or so I thought, even in the 1990s, in the midst of the, the seeming prosperity and global success of American capitalism. And I worried, I worried that a, procedure, a purely procedural, managerial, technocratic approach to governing the economy and the society created a kind of moral void I worried that it was hollowing out public discourse. After all, if experts and technocrats are deciding the most important mm -hmm. questions, then there's very little left for us to do and to debate as democratic citizens. And when that happens, when public discourse, the terms of public discourse become emptied of larger moral meaning and purpose, people want, well, they feel disempowered, that they don't have a meaningful say. But people want public life and public debate to be about big questions, including questions of justice uh, and, and question, debating questions of equality and inequality, of moral and civic obligation. And when there's a moral void at the center of our public discourse, sooner or later, this was my worry, sooner or later, that moral void will be filled with narrow intolerant moralisms, either religious fundamentalisms or strident hypernationalism. These are the two kind of default uh, reaches for meaning and purpose that fill empty spaces in public discourse of a democratic society. And that's what I worried about. And I said at the end of the book that I, I thought that unless we could rejuvenate a stronger civic engagement and a morally more robust kind of public discourse that sooner or later we would have politicians in political parties who would promise a politics 
that would shore up borders, harden the distinction between insiders and outsiders, and promise us a politics to take back our culture and to reassert our sovereignty with a vengeance. And, well, that was well, my worry in when you were When you're right, you're right. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a mixed. It's a mixed blessing. It's a, it's a mixed blessing because. Uh, if the, only the, you could have put money on that. <laughs> well. Yeah, spoken like a plutocrat, yeah. Nick. Always going to have to make money off of something. <laughs> oh golly. Uh, well, you know, uh, Michael, we've taken this interview long. Uh, we often ask uh, the benevolent dictator question, what you would do if uh, you had absolute control. But instead, I'm going to answer the benevolent dictator question, what I would do. And that is, I would have you teach introductory economics at Harvard. (laughs) Rather than Greg Mankiw. (laughs) Rather than Mankiw. Well, it's Furman now who's teaching it, it, but using Mankiw's book. Uh, because you, you know, you, you need to t- teach those elites, you know, from the very beginning as they're coming out of those elite institutions, you have to, you have to get to them young, Michael. Well, I'm, I'm willing to be conscripted in that noble purpose, but if I, <laughs> if I, if I get to, to be a benevolent, uh, a dictator for a day or for a moment, even may I add one other proposal? Yes, absolutely. 100%. What I would do would be to make as a central civic and political project, creating, or in some cases, recreating, class-mixing institutions, by which Mm -hmm. I mean public places and common spaces that enable people from different walks of life, the affluent and those who struggle to make ends meet, to encounter one another in the ordinary course of the day. Democracy, we, we, we don't have very many effective class mixing institutions. And in many ways, the affluent in the recent decades have, have been able to buy their way out of the common spaces of shared democratic citizenship. And democracy doesn't require perfect equality, but what it does require is that people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different class backgrounds, racial, ethnic, religious backgrounds, encounter one another, bump up against one another in the course of our everyday lives. Because this is how we learn to negotiate and to abide our differences. And this is how we come to care for the common good. So Beyond the discussions, and I think they're necessary discussions, that we have about how to address uh, economic policies, to address inequalities of income and wealth, beyond even the cultural discussions about credentialism, technocracy, uh, and, and renewing the dignity of work, in, rather than purely celebrating a credentialism, well, the well-credentialed and the successful. I think we need to renew the civic infrastructure of a shared democratic life to to recall us to the sense in which we share a civic life and can at least begin to deliberate as democratic citizens about common purposes and ends, about what it is that if we work it out 
messy those though those debates will be if we work it out and deliberate and argue together with civility and mutual respect uh, maybe uh, maybe we'll reach some agreement on contested hard questions and even where we don't maybe we'll be reminded of what it is to be a citizen that is that's fantastic okay i well, elect you benevolent dictator. yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> well uh, thank you so much uh, for your time. We're, yeah. Uh, final question, Nick. We oh, got to yeah. We got to oh, yeah, ask we the final, ask final question. question. Ahead, why, why, why do you do this work? I do this work well, in part uh, because though my subject is philosophy, what I teach and write about is is political philosophy. Um, I don't believe. I've never believed that philosophy resides in the heavens, far beyond the world in which we live. I've always thought that philosophy belongs in the city where citizens gather and where at our best, we reason together and argue together about big philosophical questions such as the meaning of justice and the common good. So what animates me is a certain view of philosophy, but also a certain reading of our present moral and civic crisis. Uh, we've lost the ability, we've, we, we need to recover the lost art of democratic public discourse. And that means above all that we have to discover and learn and teach the art of listening. And by listening, I don't mean just hearing the words, but I mean listening for the arguments and the moral convictions lying behind the opinions of those with whom we disagree and figuring out how to engage with those differences and those disagreements. So that's my project. To, to connect philosophy to the world in a way that promotes our ability to reason together in public about the hardest moral and civic questions we face. I, I'm not sure if you knew, I, I studied philosophy too, but I, I, it, never, yeah. it never occurred to me to, <laughs> it never occurred to me to take it in that direction. Although I, I, Goldie, I guess I have. Here I am. You, you see? Well, no, very, look, yeah. What am I saying? Now. Yeah. Look you now. Here yeah. you are. Yeah. You've brought it full circle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I, it's, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Um, it's an economics podcast, but some of my favorite episodes when we have philosophers on. And, you know, we have Elizabeth Anderson coming up shortly, uh, having her back on again. Really looking forward to that. And, and I doubly want to thank you for coming on because clearly you must not go on every podcast, only the most uh, meritocratic ones, the ones through talent and hard work have demonstrated that they deserve your presence on their podcast. And so it, it really makes me feel better about myself. So <laughs> it's all about me. I, I, I would put it slightly differently. I would say I would say I'm honored to to join you in this podcast dedicated as you are to reviving our civic life and promoting the common good. There you go. Okay, I'll I'll take that description. That's much better. <laughs> okay, thank you again for being with us. Thank you Nick, thank you Goldie. You know, Nick, and I'm sure I've said this before, every time I hear a Democrat 
uh, use the phrase ladders of opportunity or talk about equality of opportunity, I feel a little nauseous. I've always hated uh, that that conversation about opportunity. I always intuited that it didn't get to the heart of the problem. And uh, reading Michael's book really helps explain why. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. It's just, I mean, it's not like merit doesn't exist and that we shouldn't try to be meritorious right. and that and that there's not a difference between people who are good at things and people who are bad at things and so on and so forth. But I think that when you, in particular, Goldie, when you combine... Here's my new thesis, having thought about it not that long. But my thesis is that when you combine the idea of merit with the neoliberal conception or the neoclassical conception of economic cause and effect, the convergence of those things creates this toxic culture and policy agenda, right? Because merit in and of itself is not harmful, right? The idea of merit. But when you instantiate it in everything you do and say about how the world is shaped, when you also believe that markets are perfectly efficient and therefore the rich deserve to be rich and the poor deserve to be poor, when you connect that with homo economicus, which is that people are reliably selfish and the more selfish we are, the more prosperity we create. And the idea that the economy is this Pareto optimal equilibrium within which if one thing goes up, another thing has to go down. Therefore, any kind of thing you do to reshape it to, for example, make it more just will just decrease efficiency and be bad for everyone. When you, those things combined create this toxic thing that has infected our culture and led to the, the divisiveness and polarization that uh, Sandel uh, worries so much about. And that it's undemocratic, it's anti-democratic on, on both sides of the political spectrum, right. in both parties, because what it does is it serves as a substitute for the moral debates that we should be having, the democratic debates, because it's not necessarily even uh, ever an issue of whether a particular policy proposal is smart, whether uh, you, you can argue whether it will work or not work, whether it's efficient or whether it's inefficient. If the people don't want it, if it's not what the people want, the majority of people want, then we shouldn't do it. What we should be doing is always the right thing. And obviously, uh, our argument that when you, you do what's right for the middle class, uh, it's always going to be what's right for the economy. It's always going to be what's right uh, for uh, our democracy. I think that is as much, you and I would agree, that is as much a moral argument as it is a technical economic argument. We think that the two go together uh, entirely. And I feel like reading that book, it, it provides a lot of support to where to what we've been thinking helps clarify a lot of my own thoughts. And I got to say, I see myself in the criticism as well, because, uh, you know, my leanings have always been towards being a bit of a technocrat that, you know, I've always I consider myself smart and I think smart people should be in control. And I think 
maybe I wasn't so smart in thinking that because my God, have they done a shitty job? No, I agree. I agree. And, you know, one of the things that I thought Michael raised that was very telling is how few non-college educated people are in Congress. And here's the thing is there's tens of millions of incredibly bright non-college educated people in this country who would be outstanding uh, members of Congress and represent the interests of non-college educated people in a in a absolutely fantastic way. And it, it really is kind of a, an embarrassment to our political system that more folks from more walks of life aren't included in the yeah, governance and, structure. So and and I and I would bet, Nick, that it's uh, if you look at the two parties, I bet you uh, I bet you there's fewer non-college educated representatives in the Democratic Party than in the Republican Party. Sadly, I think you're right. Because, yeah. to some, you know, there is there, there is some truth to this idea of Democrats being taken over by elites. Yeah. In any case, of course, uh, we highly recommend Michael Sandel's books, The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good, and Democracy's Discontent, a new edition for our perilous times. There are links in the show notes. You can, of course, buy them at your local independent bookstore or at that big, I'd say, unmeritocratic uh, online monopoly. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.